I hope y'all enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I did. Priscilla was an amazing guest and shared so much about mental health. And it's not really detailed. It's super conversational. We spoke about her own experiences and learning to um, sort of see that what we think something looks like isn't necessarily what it is. And this was one of the things that I learned just from talking to her. And as we talk through what depression looks like, what borderline personality disorder looks like and eating disorders. And so we talked through some of that. And we also discuss the uh, article with the Confess Project. If you follow me on social media at H on my chest, and you will have seen that I posted it was an article on race and mental health and sexual health and how these all kind of play a part uh, with one another. We have a very great conversation, and I hope that this is something that you'll enjoy. We um, talk about Priscilla's own navigation of her mental health uh, diagnoses, and it's really awesome to be able to sit and have this kind of a conversation with someone who has direct experience with mental health challenges and other uh, challenges as far as with uh, the eating disorder. And she she talks through that as well, and I don't want to give too much away. Um, Thank you again to Waxo. Thank you for you for being a continued listener, something positive for positive people. If this is your first episode that you're checking in on, um, this is still good to listen to for a first one, but I strongly encourage you to go back through and listen, look at the titles and see which episodes you'd be most interested in based on what resonates with you from the title and description, or even just a picture of the person on the podcast promo piece. So, um, again, just thanks to Waxo for their continued support of the show. If you haven't already visit Waxo, W-A-X-O-H.com and you can find a lot of sex positive articles on there and I'm so pumped to still be a part of the we need a button campaign where people are advocating for queer friendly empathetic compassionate health care and um, for more on that you can also check out the something positive for positive people episode right before this one with Lorraine from slutty girl problems and you get to hear about her own experiences um, in advocating for the we need a button campaign as well So I hope you enjoy this episode with Priscilla of Something Positive for Positive People. Priscilla, what are your pronouns? She, her, hers. Okay. It's been a while. I haven't recorded a podcast in... It's been about a month now. I haven't done an interview with anyone. Let me say that. So I might be a little bit rusty coming into this. No, you good. You good. (laughs) We're part of a conversation. Right? (laughs) It's an important conversation because today what we're going to be talking about is the intersection of race, sexual health, and mental health. Is that what the article was? It's Why This Matters, the Intersection of Race, STIs, and Mental Health. Yes, I was close. (laughs) Priscilla, can you tell me what encouraged you to write this article? So that that was the title of an article that we connected through. Um, I met you on Instagram. We talked about what I was doing. We talked a little bit about what you were doing. But um, the focal point of this conversation is really going to be on that article, and then we'll branch out from there. So let's just go right into it. What encouraged you to write this particular piece? Okay, so this piece is part of the Confess Project blog. So the Confess Project is a national organization that serves Black and, well, ideally in the future it will also serve Brown, but also right now it's just Black boys and men. And it's mental health advocacy because, as we know, that population does not get a lot of recognition when it comes to mental health. So when I was thinking of, like, what should I write about, I know from personal experience, I used to teach sex ed in Baltimore City, and it was all boys. And I realized then that there is a strong need for this population to be recognized because I was just in awe of how much misinformation is out there. And a lot of these boys were also fathers. And I saw that there's a strong correlation between race, SES, and health in general. This was back 
when I was in college. So now it's 2019, six years later, and I wanted to see, you know, what has changed? You know, is there more access to treatment? Is there more access to competent sex ed? You know, what's the situation? And unfortunately, I found that not much has changed. You know, there's still a huge access gap and so much work that needs to be done to help black and brown communities. So I wanted to shed light on that. What's SES stand for? Socioeconomic status. So okay. pretty much like your income. So I've been hosting this podcast for about three years now. And whenever I bring up race, I'm always met by someone who says, what's race got to do with it? And it's like literally everything. Everything. <laughs> and the person who says that seems to also be part of the problem. Do you get people who ask you that kind of thing? Like, oh, why has it got to be black boys, black men? Right. You know what? Actually, I have not really received that type of response um, in terms of the blog that I'm writing for or really just anything recently because I've been passionate about race relations since I was a child, like literally in middle school. So if you know me, then you know that's what I'm about. You know I'm black and brown all day, so... I think for people that don't know me and, you know, on Instagram, not everyone that follows me knows me or comes across my page. So I haven't really received that many responses. I mean, in one of my articles, someone wrote, you know, it's not that cut and dry in terms of the intersection of race and mental health. And my response was, no, what I said was factual. And no matter how you cut it, that's factual. Because anything that I write about, I support it with empirical research and I cite different research articles so that people can see that these are not my opinions. I'm literally being objective and presenting a strong case for the truth. Mm -hmm. Race in this country affects everything, like you said. Especially when we get to talking about sex education you've taught sex education and then you went back into it and you noticed that nothing's really changed and there's a lot of systemic shit that's there if i'm gonna put it real cut and dry i interviewed someone a black lady uh she's 25 years old and we talked about her experiences growing up where sex just wasn't talked about and there were things that happened to her that should never happen to any child she was molested at a young age she got chlamydia at age 12 from someone who's 40 and then got herpes at 15. the reason that i'm referencing is is to bring to people's attention that like you said socioeconomic status plays an important part of it i think that had she had access to more education and resources, her and the people around her would have been best equipped to deal with the fuckery that was going on in the entire environment because it's an entire system, an entire community of dysfunctional behavior of people who just don't have the resources and education that they need in order to remove themselves from the dysfunction or point out the dysfunction because when you're in it, you don't know that you're in it. Like this looks like normal to you. Definitely. Like I relate so much to what you just shared. And that was another motivation for me to discuss pretty much just sex in general as it pertains to people of color, because as a Latina, a lot of cultural taboos and um, messages really affected my life and how I view sex and how I view my own sexuality. I also was a survivor of incest and different instances of sexual violations. And so I feel very passionate about that. And when I did research for other blog posts, I found that Black people and Latinos, we suffer extreme and elevated rates of ACEs which I believe is adverse childhood experiences. So that can include sexual abuse, poverty, just violence in your environment. And so I just feel like it's easy for some people to say that race doesn't affect things. And that's coming from a place of privilege, because if you are a person of color in this country, race does affect everything. And it is not a coincidence that black and brown, we experience such elevated risk of contracting STIs, of other chronic illnesses, of incarceration of poverty i mean you name it it's like yeah. if you look at the statistics they're just not in our favor i'm reading um this book the body keeps the score talking about trauma and one of the phrases that came up is transgenerational trauma how um the trauma that our ancestors have faced it affects us and how we do things and i talk about 
how people in poverty often stay in poverty because of that transgenerational trauma and like it's very difficult to get out of a survival mindset because that's our priority our priority is survival it's hard to see anything else when every day you're worried about making sure that you can eat getting back and forth to school work alive because you're also more likely to be exposed to violence and then on top of that you got like police brutality and all of the stuff that's in the media of violence towards people who look like you so there are all these factors that compound on top of one another it's a luxury almost to have knowledge and education when it really should be something that everyone has access to yes i mean that is the definition of systemic racism it's just all a system i definitely agree with transgenerational trauma because I've experienced it. Both of my parents come from very traumatic backgrounds and that affected their parenting of me. And so personally, that has been a strong motivator to seek therapy and to work really hard in therapy because I'm not going to continue those patterns. I'm going to break them. I'm going to stop this cycle. And you have to be very honest and recognize okay, maybe the things in my family are not okay. Yeah, they're normal, but maybe what they did was not the right thing. And it takes courage to speak up and be like, maybe you need to go to therapy or maybe we can do something different. And in my family, I've been that person. So I'm comfortable writing blogs and doing podcasts to talk about things that matter. Yeah. So help other people. I feel like our parents did the best they could with us. They did what they knew to do, which was essentially like not what their parents did. And they just fuck us up in a whole different kind of way. But we're here. So they gave us a fighting chance. And I want to know from you, I know what it was for me was really getting out of my own environment to see that there was something else, like there was a different normal. First example for me is when I got to high school, that was the first time I saw people's parents together. I thought everyone had step parents, step mom, step dad, went to their dads on the weekend, lived with their mom. And then when I started to go over my friend's house, it was like, oh. I didn't know that this was (laughs) a thing. So that's just one example of how I began to be exposed to just different ways of life. What was it for you? I would say going to college. I grew up moving around all of my life. That hasn't really stopped. So I would say college was the first time literally that I was guaranteed to stay in one place for four years. And so I felt a little bit more relaxed, like, okay, I can try to form relationships and In doing that, and also I lived away from my parents and my family and relatives, so it was just me. And I was able to see, kind of like what you expressed, that people's families didn't look like mine in some regard. You know, my parents are together, but as far as things that took place in my house, like how people communicated, I learned that not everyone communicates so passionately. There's different ways to speak to people. And on the other hand, I also realized that there were a lot of patterns that I saw with some of my friends. You know, they would express some traumas and experiences that they had and how their family reacted or didn't react. And I could relate to that. I would say that that was kind of like my biggest takeaway in going to college and grad school and having like heart to hearts with people. I was like, okay, I wasn't the only one who received that type of reaction to my trauma and I realized that wow this is actually not okay this cult of silence and you know we don't talk about these things because I wasn't the only one adversely affected a lot of my friends are still coping with that pain because their experiences weren't validated by their family members yeah and to add on to what you said so when I was referencing the young lady I was talking about earlier like when she was diagnosed with chlamydia at age 12 that's what her mom said her mom's just like we're not going to talk about this we're not this is not something that we're going to talk about and so when you create and foster an environment like that it's very resistant to people being able to open up and express wrongs in the world so like you know i mentioned that it was a 40 year old man that gave her chlamydia so why is no one talking about that why aren't we talking about all of the other dysfunctions that kind of mindset that thinking that we ain't gonna talk about it it's not helping no and people are gonna get their information would you rather them get it from a trustworthy accurate source or get it from anywhere that's not here Yeah. The one thing you said is, you know, our parents tried their best. I believe that. I absolutely adore and respect my parents. I wouldn't be here without them. But yes, they did make mistakes in their parenting. 
but I've come to accept that it was not done out of malice in their hearts. I'll focus on one of my parents. This parent reacted the way that they did because they thought that they were protecting me and they thought that they were protecting the family unit. And understanding that, because it's easy to see, um, you know, with your friend that you spoke to, you know, how her mother was like, oh, we're not going to talk about this. It's easy for us to judge or be like, oh my gosh, like, how could a mom do that? First of all, it's really common. Second of all, in that mom's mind, she may have really thought, you know, if the public learns about this, my child will be ostracized. She will be condemned as a whore. She, um, maybe they were financially dependent on the 40 year old man. We're going to be homeless. Like, I don't know her thought process, which doesn't excuse what she did, but there has to be a degree of compassion and patience because there's a lot of psychological brainwashing that has existed and persisted for generations that we have to undo. In order to undo that, we have to come from a place of education and trying to uplift one another. Because if we just judge the mom, then other mothers are not gonna come forward and say, you know what, I reacted that way to my child, I'm just gonna keep it to myself. So no, we can't have silence. We have to have people feeling comfortable and safe to come forward. Yeah, and so how do you think we can get out of that silence because the silence is really it's easy it's comfortable and it's so easy to just dismiss it for now and just deal with it later to the point where it never gets dealt with until it has to get dealt with right and it's like you're describing my family it's crazy um, my bad I'm, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm gonna respect you know privacy of my relatives but um, unfortunately, I'll share a little bit more about my own story. So I was molested by my maternal grandfather. And fast forward, I came forward um, and shared it with my parents, with my relatives. And other relatives were confronted and asked, like, did you know anything about this? Did you know that he did these things, etc." Nobody said anything. Everyone denied it. Um, a lot of covering up. But very recently, I discovered through my own questioning that he was actually removed by CPS for molesting another cousin of mine. I had no idea. My parents didn't have any idea, but everyone else knew for the most part. So that sense of betrayal of like, wow, you know, these are people that I grew up with all my life. They knew the pain that I experienced. To think that it could have been prevented or at a minimum to have people validate my experience and ask, how can we help? We're sorry that that happened to you versus, well, he wasn't a killer, so it wasn't that bad. And well, you don't know what he went through as a child. I share that to express, I know those feelings very well. They're very painful. Um, you feel like you're not special enough. You weren't worthy enough to be protected. People don't really care about you. So I think in order to change this narrative, we need to normalize mental health treatment. We need to normalize speaking about things that we're not supposed to talk about because if someone doesn't kind of step out of that framework, it's not going to change. So I've been that person in my own family and in my own circle of friends to say, you know, it's okay to talk about sexual abuse. I did not sexually abuse someone. I was sexually abused. So why am I going to feel ashamed? I haven't done anything wrong. I was a little girl. So changing that thinking of like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> you don't have anything to be ashamed about, which I don't want to invalidate survivors' feelings of shame. I definitely understand that. But I want to change that way of thinking of the real culprit is walking free. And sexual abusers rarely just abuse once. They abuse multiple people. And that was the case with my grandfather. He abused multiple cousins and aunts of mine. There's so many consequences of not speaking out that we really need to put aside our own personal discomfort and just do it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's easier said than done, but there's definitely resources available online and through therapy to learn how to do that. Because I learned how to do that. You said a few things that really hit home for me one of which is um you didn't use these words verbatim but when i hear grandfather i hear a level of respect head of household so there may have been a level of respect to where people were like ah uh, you know what happens if he gets in trouble and then we now have to fend for ourselves like how are we going to take care of ourselves and then you also mentioned like that person might be being relied on for so much 
So yeah. that never really occurred to me. If there's a situation where someone's in that way, where if they speak out and it's you versus the head of household, if we're looking at this on a hierarchy perspective, you're a little more expendable than the breadwinner of the house. So yeah. are there resources for people who might feel like that, who are like, oh, if I go to this person, it's going to be my word against theirs, and then I'm going to be on my own and I'm fucked? Yes, definitely. That's a reality also for domestic violence survivors. I mean, it's just so complicated. So in that situation, I would recommend speaking to a counselor, speaking to any trusted adult, but ideally someone who is trained to deal with these situations because they can create, you know, an emergency plan on how to um, either like escape because it depends the level of violence occurring, like how urgent is it? Um, they can connect how to become financially independent and support groups. Like there's, I've used these resources. Not all of these resources cost money. A lot of them are free. Um, a lot of them are sliding scale because financial need is also, you know, kind of a reason a lot of people don't pursue therapy because they think it's outside of their financial means. But again, there are free support groups. There are free therapists. I've used these services for free. So they're definitely out there. Um, if you connect with me off of, you know, the podcast, I can definitely like, I'll do my part and I'll help you out to find these resources. Another reason that some people, prim primarily people of color, will not seek help from the police because sexual abuse is a felony, you know, it's very serious, uh, is because we don't trust the law enforcement. We don't have reason to trust the law enforcement. So a lot of times we're like, oh no, let's, let's not involve the police. Let's not involve these legal entities, these judges, these prosecutors that they're not even going to serve us. They're not going to help us anyways. So why are we going to kind of feed our loved one to the wolves, regardless yeah. of the crime that they committed? You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of twisted thinking. And then when we talk about like the systemic racism, oppression, that's part of it. We're supposed to believe that we can't get help from the places that we're told to get help, right? How yeah. as backwards is that? There's a distrust that has to be present in order for the status quo to remain the way it is. So if I don't trust law enforcement and I also, you know, don't trust my relative and I, how can I trust myself? How can I trust myself to be able to do what's best for me in the situation to get out of the situation? How can I protect myself, you know? Exactly. And unfortunately, this myth of this law enforcement not serving us isn't really a myth because it is founded in facts. You know, in one of my articles where I wrote about the experience of black girls and women, they are often not believed by law enforcement at elevated rates than white women are. And again, it comes back to systemic racism because there's a lot of stereotypes that have presented black women as the Jezebel, as this sexualized sapphire, all these weird terminology, but basically stereotypes that they're um, sexual fiends and they crave sex. So they can't be victimized because we're giving them the sex that they want. And then with black men, there's so many stereotypes as well that you guys are thugs, that you guys are violent, um, and also that you're sexualized. A lot of these, uh, which they seem so distant, but they're really not. Because even if you see contemporary media, you see these stereotypes play out. I'm on Instagram a lot. That's where I get a lot of my sex education and social justice information now. Because I really just, I don't trust a lot of resources like the news, mainstream media, to present things in a factual way. I saw something that said, don't call the police on black people. And I, I was like, that's fucked up. But I get it. That is one traumatic, two, and like we're way more likely to already be presented with an exponentially greater amount of hostility than a group of white kids. You know, I, I work at a gym right outside of a bus stop where there's a lot of illegal activity going on. People are clearly buying and selling drugs. Police come by often, don't do anything. And I see the stuff and it's more of a matter of like, I can go out there and say, hey, y'all take that shit down the street somewhere. Like, don't do that in front of my business versus calling the cops, you know, puts them in such more danger. It's like, hey, police, this is happening. And they already show up like, oh, shit, they're already doing something. They know I ain't got no business doing. And then they're already there on edge. And it's just so much more of a greater risk of not just violence, but fatalities even. Yes. 
Literally. I also wrote a blog post about wellness checks. And if you are a black person, then I'm not sure about the statistics of Latinos, but they're probably very similar. Where it, when people call for wellness checks by the police, who are often not trained to deal with mental health situations, they run a very increased risk of being killed during this wellness check. And I know there's been cases in the news. The, the names escape me. I don't want to mispronounce them. But yeah, it, it happens more than it should ever happen, which is zero times. Yeah. So it's definitely a reality that mm. people have reason to fear, unfortunately. It's just like an ever-present tension there, unfortunately. Oh. So taking this into a little bit of a, <laughs> a different note, we could kind of dip back from this. First off, are you okay? You you good talking through all of this? Yeah, I'm good. All right. Sure. Um, when we spoke, you mentioned, I keep wanting to say bipolar disorder, but it's not bipolar disorder. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. All right. And it's your diagnosis. What are you dealing with? Well, I'm dealing with a lot of things, but we we can focus on that. We can focus on specific one. Okay. Which honestly is kind of like the umbrella diagnosis that I've come to find out. Over the years, I've been diagnosed with PTSD. OCD, generalized anxiety disorder, anxiety, an eating disorder, what else? And then the big one is the borderline personality disorder. That's what it was. was. (laughs) I was like, BPD, BPD, and all I can think is bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder, (laughs) borderline personality disorder. Yeah, um, people kind of interchange them or use them interchangeably, but they're very different. I'm definitely not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but my understanding is that borderline is kind of like bipolar disorder on a smaller spectrum. So when people offensively use the phrase, oh, you're acting so bipolar, they mean to say borderline because borderline is, there's 10 or nine or 10 different symptoms. You have to have at least five to be diagnosed. Some of these symptoms include being very impulsive, reckless, suicide ideation, having a shifting self-image, like you don't really know who you are and your sense of self is very uh, unstable. You also don't really know how to have stable relationships. So those are a few of them. So what that can look like, again, every mental health condition exists on a spectrum. Have you seen the movie Girl Interrupted? No. Okay, so this is like from the 90s, but Angelina Jolie, she has borderline in the movie. And it's it takes place in a psych ward, so like everyone has a mental health condition. And she is definitely on some other shit. And so... When I receive that diagnosis, I'm like, I'm nowhere near Angelina. I don't act like that. I think you're a little confused if you think that I'm like that. But it's like, no, it's a spectrum like anything else. So I exist somewhere on the spectrum. I'll keep that to myself. And I have certain symptoms. But the good news is that through treatment, you can get to a point, unlike bipolar disorder, where you won't meet the diagnosis. It's not curable, but it's something that can be managed to the point that you don't exhibit symptoms. It's one of those things where once you're aware of it, you can you, you can recognize it before it comes up. Not necessarily. The way my psychologist explained it was, you know, also with age, the symptoms tend to kind of wane. But once you do a lot of therapy, I should note, you have to do a lot of work. And specifically, it's dialectical behavioral therapy which um, is like six months to a year of intense, you know, group therapy, different assignment. It's a whole like curriculum. You need to do that. And you need to work really, really hard to get to a point where you know the coping skills, you know how to manage your stressors and stuff like that. Then with time and with a lot of work, you can get to a point where if a new psychiatrist were to meet you and do a diagnosis test, you wouldn't meet the criteria. So that can happen. Unlike with bipolar disorder, once you have it, you will always need to manage it. You will always need to uh, take medication or have some type of treatment. Um, I think it's because it has more of a biological component, whereas BPD does have a biological component, but it also has a strong nurture uh, component. So if you experience trauma in your childhood, you're 13 times more likely to get diagnosed with BPD. It's very influenced by uh, the amount of trauma that you had in your childhood. And also, if your environment was very emotionally invalidating. So you had a lot of people saying, whatever feelings you express, they kind of shut them down. So if you have that mixture of biology and an invalidating environment, 
then that kind of sets the foundation for possibly developing BPD, which was the case for me. Wow. There's so much that I just don't know. Being in this space, I talk to a lot of people who get here because of an STI diagnosis, and then they find the resources, and they find all of this additional helpful stuff. And then to, like, hear language around things that I've experienced in other people or just in having conversations with people I'm like there can be more (laughs) that's being done and you really speak highly of therapy of seeing a psychologist and so like I want to make this space a useful resource for these people like I want to be able to serve the people who come here yeah they may come for an STI diagnosis they may come because you know of stigma I feel like at the root of it all it's really a matter of um, a shame there's shame around not being perfect I guess like of having a positive STI status or they may be shamed about having to see a therapist because of the stigma that's been associated with it for so long of only crazy people need to see a therapist I want to be able to offer that kind of healing here. And I think that by having you on to talk about your experience, it's really like I'm getting this. Um, it's like an electrifying sensation through my central <laughs> yeah. nervous system that I take as a sign to move forward. Right now, just sharing your experience is just like, yeah, Courtney, we got to do this. We got to get we got to give people access to therapy because it is challenging to do, especially in a society where, like I told you, the survival things are a priority. I can't focus on myself or getting a therapist or my mental health because I can't afford to miss a day of work because I can't allocate funds to that when what happens if my car breaks down and then I can't get to work. Like all of these other things have to be more of a priority for people who are in impoverished communities. So we're talking specifically about black and brown kids, people, adults, people, period. So I'm just like thinking out loud here as I'm saying this stuff, but this is important. It is very important. I definitely want to validate people's experiences because even with my own background like I didn't come from money my parents are both immigrants from um, developing nations so I understand that but what if you have diabetes and you are exhibiting symptoms and signs that your condition is worsening would you say "Mm, uh, I'll be all right. I don't want to take time from work or I don't want to, um, I won't be able to find a babysitter for my kids, which are all valid reasons. Or would you say, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I can to make this work. I think you would choose the latter because unfortunately mental health is not seen as, I guess as urgent as physical health when it should be. Mm. Because when you're experiencing, um, let's say a depressive episode or Whatever the case is, you can lose your life. You can engage in reckless behavior that can result in you losing your life. You can do something that will really negatively affect you. So we have to have that same sense of urgency, that this is not something that, um, whatever. No, you have to prioritize it. You have to make it work because it is a matter of your happiness, your life, um, everything. And you said that therapists operate on a sliding scale. So what a sliding scale essentially just means is that while they may offer therapy at a specific rate, they are willing to work with you based on what your needs are, what your income level is. And it's just a matter of you beginning the conversation with them. Exactly. And also, I want to give a little shout out to NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm a speaker for them. And everything that they offer is free. So they have classes. um, They have pretty much uh, you can walk in and get a wealth of resources and information. And if you tell them, you know, these are my financial restraints, they'll work with you. Like there is absolutely help out there. You just... um, have to find it and of course you have Courtney you have me Uh, you can connect with us and we'll help you you don't have to do it alone I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes as well when we wrap up and everything how are you on time I want to talk to you more there's a lot (laughs) (laughs) oh from a sex education standpoint you said that nothing's really changed in the communities that you go in or have gone in and you said you talk 
black, brown, boys, men, what problems are you seeing that are most prevalent and affect black, brown, men, boys? So I volunteered from about 2009 to 2013. So it's a while ago. And this is an inner city, Baltimore. This area has a lot of crime. There's just a lot going on in that area. And so a lot, well, first of all, this was a halfway house. So all of them had a criminal record and all of them um, were there because the court ordered them to be there. And so some of them described fear of returning to their environments. I remember one person, he expressed like, you know, I'd rather stay here. I don't want to go back to the streets. I don't want to go back to that life. Like he was scared. And when you see some of these young men, I mean, I don't feel this way, but some people can see them and be like, oh, you know, they have these neck tattoos. They have all these street tattoos. Like they're intimidating or they're just like these hyper-masculine people. But really it's like, no, these are little boys. The oldest one was maybe 17 some of them are 14. To me, they're kids. No matter how they look like, and even if they have kids, they're still impressionable youth and they need parenting. They need positive role models. And so I think there's a lot of absence of positive messages being fed to us. I mean, if you go to any predominantly Latino or um, Black community, what do you see on the street corners? You see a lot of liquor stores. You see a lot of pretty much things that are not conducive to us advancing in our lives. And I think that's very systemic. I think when you look at the research and you see the amount of money that alcohol and cigarette tobacco companies put into impoverished neighborhoods, why don't you put that money into libraries? Why don't you put that money into rehabilitation programs for us? You'd rather see us behind bars. You'd rather keep us down instead of advancing us. So we can't rely on the government or greater society to help us we have to do like Malcolm X said and really push self-help. We mm-hmm. have to help one another. And I see black and brown as one. That's just my personal experience. Like we need to have solidarity. And if we listen to a lot of hip hop messages, which again, who is controlling that music? I'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's like, who is controlling that? You're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> you know? When we hear these messages of all these drugs and all of this alcohol and being promiscuous, a lot of them are literally talking about um, not using condoms um, in their own language, whatever they're saying. They're not positive messages. It's normalizing and glorifying self-destructive behavior. So I was very happy to see you on Madame Noir. And I'm like, wow, he's providing a safe space as a black man for other people, regardless of race or gender, to express, you know, their experiences. And I think that's really powerful, like just representation, having a man of color and myself, a woman of color, kind of just say, you know what, we're going to change the narrative, regardless of what society is saying about us, we're going to provide our own spaces so that we can come forward and our voices will be heard. Mm -hmm. I think that's just really important. I do too. And being in this space, like I, I've, <laughs> I've been called a sex educator and I'm like, oh, I don't think I really, you know, earned that title or gone through the schooling or anything. Like I'm more of a sex fatil- facilitator. Now that sounds like something completely different. <laughs> like a, an agent. Whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Let's, let's, yeah. Let's go with sex education. Influencer. Like sex education. Influencer. Yeah. Well, we can do something like that. I think that's a good one. Yeah, an agent of sex positivity. I feel like that works. Um, That way I don't have any sort of legal obligations or moral obligations. Yeah, like I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. You know, yeah. Oh, yeah, I will always say that. I'll say that often whenever needed because I'll say something that sounds like a therapist that people might latch on to and be like, oh, Courtney said. No, don't say Courtney said because Courtney's not a therapist. Yeah, I don't recall saying I'm just kidding, but yeah, I just... Yeah, they, I understand legal liability. <laughs> but they pull it up and then play the link for me. Yeah, you did. You did say that. <laughs> <laughs> the messaging, uh, pushing of self-help. Like it, it, this is important to me because being in this space, I don't see people who look like me. I see a lot of non-black, non-male identifying people who are in this space. So like when I got here... I think the closest thing I had to a role model was Melissa from Sex Positive Families. But I will say that oftentimes I felt lonely or like out of place in this space because there aren't any other 
black heterosexual men who are talking about sex, sexual health. So it's lonely not being able to see how I need to do it or any kind of a template. Like I'm really just kind of walking through the fog and hoping I don't fall off a fucking cliff. <laughs> so it, I guess what I, I'm saying all of that to say this, you know, I think that in our hearts we know what's right whenever we can get to a place of being able to hear and receive that message that's in our heart, we know the route. And that may look like creating something that wasn't there for you, but you need it and then allowing it to be there for other people. So that's where I'm at with this. Like I started this going into conversations about herpes because that was what affected me and as I had more conversations I saw what affected other people I also got to see more of what affected me that I just didn't recognize like uh, one of the things that I've learned you know just while we're under the entire umbrella of health and how it affects people differently um, different races especially depression depression to me never looked the way that I thought it did so depression as a black man, myself, let, let's just speak from my experience. I thought depression was you being sad all the time. And then on social media, now I'm seeing a lot of people loosely throw around the word depression. And even in real life, like it's very loosely used. Yeah. So it's on a spectrum. Depression for one person may look like not being able to shower, not being able to get out of bed, not being able to function in society, not being able to work. So a lot of just limitations and not being able to do whatever. Now for me, I look back and I'm like, I've never been depressed because I've been able to do all of those things. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I can't miss a day of work because if I miss a day of work, I don't get paid. I don't pay bills. And that's going to put me in a situation to like, I'm going to be depressed because I'm not going to be able to do things. So I'm learning now that depression for one person may not look the same way as it does to another person, but it doesn't mean that they're not affected the same way. So even having to get up and go to work every day and being there and getting the job done, like you can still be depressed or experiencing depression just because someone else is not able to move at all uh, or get out of their bed and you are, you know, it doesn't invalidate either person's experience. And this was something that I struggled with at first because I was like, damn, must be nice to not be able to get out of bed and not have to go to work and not have to do the things that a person who has to survive day-to-day -day life has to do you know what i mean yeah, and that was a lot at one time i'm sorry <laughs> I, I want you to speak your experience like yeah i definitely agree with that and part of me is curious if you think there was a little bit of denial with that a little rationalization because i know with for example my eating disorder i was like well i don't throw up so guess i don't have one like i felt like if i did that then i had an eating disorder but as long as I didn't do that and I did a list of other things, that didn't really count. So I wonder if maybe part of you was like, well, I'm not really depressed because I can go to work and I, I do take showers, etc. I'm curious if there was a part of you that struggled with accepting that you were experiencing that so i want to go ahead and give a shout out to the let's talk bro podcast it's a podcast on black masculinity and they talked about how masculinity looks different the masculinity of a man versus the masculinity of a black man like these look different so we can't hold ourselves to the standard that wasn't built for us so to speak so in listening to these i began to see sort of like a different archetype of what depression is and can look like and looking back on times where people around me or loved ones were out of character like there's almost a threshold you create for people and if they're out of that routine of whatever that threshold is and they or they fall on one side or the other i think that was when i began to go huh something was off about them and so i look at times where maybe my mom wasn't as enthusiastic as she always or she normally was or when my little sister just wanted to be in her room or i look at like when my friends i don't hear from them for a while or they're not wanting to play basketball or something those things began to click for me that in hindsight 
I recognize that depression looks a lot different from the people who aren't as open or vocal about depression than the people who are open and vocal about depression, if that makes sense. So for me, I don't want to say that there was a denial. It was just this is what depression is. I don't do those things. And so it was more of like not having any kind of an understanding or having something to compare it to outside of my own experiences until it just clicked one day. Depression is, and then you see it and you get to see more people talking about it, more people sharing their experiences and how they were, who they were while they were in a depressed state. No, I don't feel like um, there was any sort of a denial there. That was just a lack of awareness or understanding at all. I definitely understand that and can empathize. Again, with my eating disorder, one reason that it didn't even really like occur to me that maybe this is what is happening is because I never saw a person, a a woman or a man of color have an eating disorder. I always saw um, like the videos in health class were of white women. And in magazines, I always saw white women. So I really thought that was a white woman's disorder. Yeah, that's what... And again, I was younger, so... Yeah. I, I'm curious if, yeah, maybe that was the case with you as well. Like, we don't have that representation, which why I think it's so great that you have a, uh, this platform because you are rep- representing, you know, people of color. And, and when, you, when you just said that, it just clicked to me that um, I think this stopped a generation ago. <laughs> but whenever you bored, depression was boredom in yeah. my household. If I were to express symptoms of depression it would be met with, oh, you bored, go do something. You need to go outside, you need to go play, you need to do something. And part of me feels like there's some truth to that because when you're bored, stagnant, not doing anything, I think that maybe anxiety is a better word. Like you have sort of this like anxiety. And then when you're able to move that stagnant energy that I believe anxiety to be and you put it in something, then that is healing for you because the energy isn't just sitting there and like weighing you down, slumping you over. It's being utilized and there's a vibrancy to you and there's like life in you. So whenever my family would be like, oh, you just bored, you need to go do something. I'd go outside and I guess I'd feel good. Like I'd forget that I was bored or depressed or whatever. But the point being that maybe, maybe they were onto something intuitively versus just completely unaware that this is depression and it requires some medication go see someone go see a therapist about this because that depression will persist and the stressors of your childhood may not have been as intense as your stressors of adulthood so how are you going to manage those stressors if you don't have any coping skills or tools. So I definitely believe your parents are coming from a place of love and do the best that they could. Like, oh, here, we want you to be happy, like go play. But as an adult, you can't go and play all day. <laughs> like you can't, that's not going to be a feasible Literally. coping mechanism for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, coming into awareness of, part of me feels like ignorance is bliss, which I mean, it is like the less you know, not the better off you are, but in certain situations so like when you're a kid you don't know anything when you go outside and you play basketball my parents would say stay between these houses you go outside of those houses like this is great like this is new and fun and exciting but come to find out this is where the trap houses are this is where people go and they do drugs and there's sex trafficking whatever it is that's going on in that area so it's like you're safe as long as you kind of stay within the bounds but at the same time what kind of harm are you doing by staying inside the lines yeah you're playing basketball in here and everything that's going on is outside of there as long as you're aware of what's happening in this bubble and you're you're only seeing the good you're fine but what happens when that bad makes its way into the safe space you have no idea you're gonna that's why a lot of kids are susceptible to trafficking and predators because they're innocent they Mm -hmm. don't know okay you're gonna offer me candy all right you know my dad or my mom didn't teach me about pedophiles about sexual abuse so it's just a man offering me candy as opposed to a sexual predator trying to lure me in yeah so it's not helpful to do that yeah so we have to educate Yeah. And that was the whole bringing it back full circle. You know, that little bubble is just a healthy state of being. And then when that little bit of anxiety or depression creeps in, if you're not able to label it, recognize it, if you're not aware of it, that should have hit you a lot harder than it would if you were to see it coming and like be able to 
defend yourself. So that's how I, I believe these kinds of things creep into us. How are we supposed to know how to cope? That's why it's so normalized um, that people binge drink and abuse drugs. And I feel like how many, I mean, do you? I, I used to as well, but now I'm sober. I don't have any friends that are sober. And most of my friends that I've had throughout my life actually have been avid consumers of drugs. And most of those people that I know to do a lot of drugs have underlying mental health conditions. And that is their way of coping. Unfortunately, that way of coping can lead to serious consequences. So I don't encourage that. That's not a form of self-care, yeah. in my opinion. Saying this, as you talk to me about that, I recognize that there was a period in my life after my herpes diagnosis where I did do a lot of drinking and didn't think anything was wrong because everybody drank. Yeah. So if everybody around me is drinking, we're all doing drugs, that's normal. But it was also distracting. I feel like I was distracting myself from a sober state of being and being able to whatever my normal, I guess, was. I distracted myself very often from being in that space and partly because maybe it hurt. I don't know now. A lot of times passes then, but I know that a lot of my Friday night, Saturday night, Sundays, even maybe even Thursday night after happy hour, all of these times were spent under some kind of an influence for the most part. Our environments encourage that because this is the norm. This is what people are doing. And until we see something different, we don't really know anything different. Yeah. And ultimately, being under the influence allows us to disconnect from our feelings. So we don't have to feel whatever we're feeling, whether it's shame or anxiety or depression. We get to escape for a little bit. But the thing is, once that wears off, you're back to reality. Nothing has changed. And the way our bodies are designed is that we do develop a tolerance. Unless you want to be an addict, it's really just not a winning game to invest in drugs. It's not going to end well. I feel like we're sort of a generation of addicts to an extent. We all are addicted to something. And we choose whether that thing we're addicted to is either unhealthy or healthy and ultimately it's just the thing that we put the most investment of our time and energy into like is that something that you may agree with yeah i definitely agree with that i mean there's research that suggests that social media you know the validation the notifications triggers our reward centers in our brain just like drugs do uh, whether it's sex, whether it's shopping, gambling, there's so many different types of addictions, which are just compulsions. You know, in my opinion, an eating disorder is an addiction. It's crazy. Like until I experienced one and was in rehab for it and I saw women, you know, lose relationships, lose pregnancies, lose jobs over their eating disorder, you know, and it all came down to whatever underlying feelings and mental health conditions they had that was feeding it. And prior to my eating disorder, I was a binge drinker. And once I got sober from binge drinking, I developed this eating disorder. And so I feel like that further supports that whatever the behavior that manifests, it all comes down to what's beneath the surface. Like what's, what's really bothering you? What traumas haven't you dealt with? Like they will always be there and they will continue to manifest, whether it's toxic relationships, whatever the case is, you know, you have to deal with those emotions because yeah. they will never go away mm. we're emotional creatures like i'm i don't care what anyone says when people say shit like oh you're just too emotional like i can't agree with that statement because we are we're driven by emotion the most logical person is driven by some emotional need whether they're conscious of it or not when we begin to feel these emotions like uh, I had a period where I would watch myself eat I in my head project myself up in the corner of the wall like looking down on myself eating and I'm like damn that's a lot of food one uh, I, I would just like critique myself very judgmentally be like why are we putting so much ranch on this or why are we eating three plates of this is the food going away what's the emotion and so when i started doing that i started to realize i was eating because i was bored often yeah. or i thought it was stress eating but it turned out that it was bored eating i'm putting off doing something yeah. replacing that with eating and these are things that 
the more I read, the more I learn about mental health, the more I'm beginning to understand just how these things impact us without us even knowing. And when you learn, when you become knowledgeable, when you begin to have language and awareness of things, you can do something about them. Now, I have a book that I cannot wait to crack open. It's something about um, changing your relationship to food because I do look at food as like comforting I guess maybe I have an eating disorder. I don't know. But like, it's interesting just having this whole conversation with you and connecting dots with things of what I think is normal versus what's actually something that needs to be examined. Nothing you've described so far alerts me that you might have an eating disorder. But again, I'm not a professional. So um, definitely like speak to someone if you feel like you might have that. But as far as eating, there's definitely... Like you said, it's comforting. For me, I also struggle with binge eating. So my eating disorder was not just like one thing. It kind of like, again, was on a spectrum and showed itself differently. But someone described it as, oh, emotional hunger. So my binge eating was me feeling too much. So I would literally stuff food down to kind of like stuff down my feelings and it sounds so strange but it was true you know anytime that I would binge eat it was because I was so anxious I was so like emotionally upset that that was my way of coping I can't go drink I'm I'm running out of options (laughs) I was like I would just (laughs) binge eat Um, and then with some people that have anorexia they experience um, emotional fullness which is like they lose their appetite they're so overwhelmed that they just can't eat. I'm not a doctor, but I believe the brain is connected to the stomach. So there's like some type of like direct connection so that basically our minds and our physical conditions are super connected. You know, the psychosomatic and whatnot. So we have to address both because they affect both. Yeah. Do you meditate? I don't. I've tried, but I can't. I just can't. I'm not patient, <laughs> which is why I need to do it. So... I have a theory. We have access to everything right now immediately. I can press two buttons on my phone and be at another place. All I have to do is walk down and get into the Uber. I can have food delivered here right now. I can look up the definition of any word. I can call or email or text any person who I want to speak to. And there's just like this sense of I'm always able to get what it is that I need so like all of my attention is I have a thought press a button and then it's done right it is very uncomfortable not to have that so if I were to sit here with my eyes closed for 60 seconds if I can even do that I will feel like I have to be stimulated somehow that same feeling that we have of having to be stimulated the discomfort of not being stimulated it's supposed to be reversed i'm learning so like i should be more comfortable with myself and being able to sit still for a minute with my eyes closed in the closet or wherever i'm at being okay with the silence but and and the discomfort of all of this shit going on at one time that should be what gives me anxiety not the other way around so like one thing that i'm learning is just the power of that silence, meditation, taking these breaks from being so accessible and being so overly stimulated so that that switch can kind of occur. I'm not there yet, but this was something that I, yeah. (laughs) Not even close, but you're right. I completely agree with what you're saying. That's how it should be. So like, I want to, you know, throw this in there. So if you're someone who maybe doesn't feel comfortable or ready yet, to go and see a therapist or reach out to a support group like there's an option for you there are all kinds of things online about just breathing breath work meditation yoga um and you can just these are places that may feel a little bit more safe for you to just kind of break away from the overstimulation and begin to get comfortable with that uncomfortable feeling of being by yourself or being in silence and being alone with whatever your thoughts and feelings are because that's really the best way to feel them and being distracted all the time like it's cool it feels good but that period where you're alone before you go to bed if you're going to bed alone and then you wake up and you're alone like always having to be around people and whatnot that's something that 
may be worth taking a look at as well. So I just wanted to make sure to drop like a few other options for people to be yeah, able to look at. Definitely because it is scary and intimidating to talk to someone that you don't know or just talk to a group of people that you don't know and reveal like your innermost intimate and traumatic experiences, especially if you haven't come to terms with them. So that's great. Definitely to have different options. Um, meditation, journaling. Oh, um, journaling. Yeah, yeah. Everything. There's so much out there. Just Take that step, though, Mm -hmm. and you'll eventually, you know, continue on your journey. Because one thing I want to make clear is, like, therapy isn't a cure. It's not like, okay, I'll do X amount of sessions, and then I will never have borderline or or OCD or anxiety ever again, or PTSD. It doesn't work like that. I'm still working on PTSD. I'm still working on my borderline. You know, I will always be working on it, which is fine. It's important to just recognize the progress and just to be humble and realize, you know, I'm not perfect and I'm never going to be perfect. So just keep working because I've been in therapy since I was like 16. I'm still working on things. You know, I still don't like not having stimulation. I always need to have like noise around me. So we're all in this together, basically. Yeah. All people are unique in our own ways. No two experiences are exactly the same. Yeah, we may have diagnoses or we may have conditions or whatever being normal again whatever the fuck that means should (laughs) never be the goal now it's more about being able to evolve into something that more so suits you something that really aligns with who you are so you just mentioned that you're never going to be perfect that's great (laughs) because imagine what perfect looks like perfect is has all their shit together if you're perfect what reason do you have to do anything why would i move what direction would i go in what what am i going to be an interesting person to be around if i'm perfect no our imperfections are the things that drive us together and striving for perfection is just like this fucking hamster wheel of illusions that we're gonna be better one day and so when we begin to let that shit go and accept our imperfections and decide that we're going to work on them work with them and live a life in a way that accommodates for those imperfections we don't have to make our imperfections accommodate for other people's lives if that makes sense i think i might have said that backwards (laughs) we'll figure it out But yeah, because I used to think, okay, you know, I've been talking about the molestation trauma, for example, for years now, like, when is it not going to be painful? When is it going to be like, okay, never mind, it wasn't that big of a deal. That will never happen. And I have to accept that. We just learn how to cope. We don't learn how to rid ourselves of pain or shame or anxiety. We just learn how to cope with it on a daily basis so that it doesn't derail our entire lives. Yeah, because that'll be the thing that guides us. Like, we will act out of shame for however long until we begin to realize, oh, wait, that's shame. Okay, I'm going to choose to act in a different way. And when we're making decisions out of our conscious power of choice, life looks different. (laughs) life looks so much different yes because there were so many things that so many patterns so many complexes so many traumas that i didn't even realize that i was consistently reenacting and consistently repeating with different people i didn't have the awareness you can't objectively analyze yourself because you're gonna always be biased you need someone outside of yourself to look at you who is a third party who didn't grow up in your household i can see things from a different point of view like that's very valuable yeah for sure priscilla yes I don't know if there's anything that we didn't get to cover. I didn't expect the conversation to go all the directions that it did, but I'm so glad it did. Same. Do you have anything else that you want to leave us with before Um, we get people a way to contact you? No, I think we covered a lot, and um, I was just very happy to be a part of it and to hear your perspective and to know that other people are going to benefit from hearing our stories. That just makes me happy. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for the time. How can people get in contact with you? So you can contact me on Instagram. I always change my handle, but I'm going to be consistent and not change it. Uh, Mental Realness Mommy. 
So it's a play on mental illness. It's about us being real about our mental health conditions as opposed to stigmatizing. Either that or I also have a website, www.priscillamaria.com. Can you spell that? (laughs) (laughs) So my first name is P-R-I-S-C-I-L-L-A. And then Maria or Maria is M-A-R-I-A. (laughs) No, everybody, like, even the other day, my last name is Gutierrez. And so when I say, okay, Priscilla Gutierrez, you're like, what? So I have to, like, say it differently. (laughs) So I've learned, just don't put the accent on. Well, I just wanted to know if you could say Maria. (laughs) All right, all right. I was like, wait a minute. So is that something you could turn off and on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know it is. All right. Some people call me Mariah, so I don't know. Is there an H at the end? Is what? There's no H at the end. Mariah has an H at the end. Exactly. Okay, all right. I thought I was tripping. We just had that conversation with somebody at the gym. (laughs) But yes, I look forward to hearing from people. Cool. I like mental realness, mommy. Like Thank you. the realness aspect of it. Because yeah. we don't we don't get enough of that. We don't get enough of the realness of stuff and the wordplay that you just said. It's not an illness, it's something that happens. It's realness. Yeah, it's no one's fault. Mm-hmm. All right. This concludes right. this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. If you like this episode, please like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. We are branching out, as you can hear. Um, While it started as a suicide prevention tool, like my ultimate goal with this is to be able to provide healing. Um, We get people here because of an STI diagnosis. Um, People come because of the misinformation that's out there about STI, sex education, and um, the stigma. But ultimately, you know, through sex, we're finding ourselves in a place of really healing shame and it's not sex isn't just genitals you know it's also like your biggest sex organ is your brain so if we're not able to take care of our mental health as well we're not going to be able to have the kind of sex that we want so that's my i just pulled that out of my ass (laughs) oh But the point is that this podcast is expanding into other spaces of usefulness. And my ultimate goal is to be able to get people to see shame for what it is and then decide how they want to move forward with it. So when you get to a place where you recognize that truth is everywhere and then like shame is distracting you from the truth, then you'll be able to just turn away from it, you know, deal with the shame and allow yourself to walk the path of truth. So that's my that's my intention moving forward uh, with this podcast, with everything I do with the nonprofit, with the collaborations moving forward. And, you know, before long, something positive for positive people will be something fill in the blank, whatever, positive for positive people. That's my goal. And I hope that y'all stick around for it and you're able to learn from it and go through your own healing process. Till next time, stay sex positive.